Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and of course, whoever. So there it was, the old bumper or intro music. I was feeling a little nostalgic, so I figured, hey, why not? And it's funny, I've been using that loop for so long that I almost feel like it's mine. Uh, Probably about 75% of the back catalog has that as intro music. But no, not mine, at least not solely. It's just an Apple loop. And I think uh, Vadim Newquist, a.k.a. Creationist Cat, has actually used that music in some of his videos. So whenever I hear it, I'm like, oh, choose something else, Vadim. But yeah, I've been torn over what to do for an intro to the show for years. But hey, let's not go off on a, uh, <laughs> on a long-winded digression there. I'll figure it out someday. So, uh, oh yeah, before we begin... I'd like to give a shout out to all the Patreon supporters out there. Well, I think there's about 15. Um, And I have a really small podcast with a small following. Uh, So relatively speaking, 15 um, patrons... At, uh, now I'm up to 70-something bucks a month, which is the highest it's ever been on Patreon for me. Um, and that might sound relatively low when you think about these really big content creators out there. Like, I think Jordan Peterson, when he was still on Patreon, was making literally... What the heck was it? It was something crazy. I don't know if it was like 70000 a month or what it was. It was something crazy. But for me, you know, um, it means a lot. 70 bucks pretty much covers the expenses for doing the show. My Adobe Creative Cloud subscription is 50-something bucks, I think. And then my Podbean subscription is about 14 or 15 bucks. Uh, and Podbean's the site I use to host the feed for the show. So uh, I really appreciate that. That's awesome. And I don't want to waste too much time e-begging. But if anyone wants to help me get that Patreon total a little higher, I'm not going to complain. As I've said before, and I've been saying this for years, at some point I'd like to turn this show into, you know, my day job. So I can stop swinging a hammer and focus all my attention on doing something that I actually love. You know, and I, my dream is to have a kind of Kyle Kalinske type thing going on. You know, where I have kind of a professional looking backdrop and I'm releasing content on a daily basis, kind of like a daily secular news show. Uh, But then would I have to uh, change the name to The Day in Doubt? Because it really wouldn't be The Week in Doubt anymore. Kidding. But uh, I actually, I'm very fond of the name of the podcast. That's one thing I don't feel conflicted about. I think I picked a good uh, show name. And so I had planned on doing kind of a standard news story episode, and I had collected a bunch of links and stories uh, throughout the course of the week. But then, of course, over the weekend, we had received that big news that the AP, the Associated Press, had declared um, Joe Biden the president-elect. And so we're hearing a lot of MAGA people saying the press doesn't elect Uh, the president, you know? And of course, that's true. But what they do do, do do, is, uh, forgive my juvenile sense of humor, is they report on the polling. And the press in general seem to have been taking a very kind of cautious or conservative approach to the numbers. They didn't want to call anything too early, even though the electoral votes were looking very good for Biden. And But then eventually, the Associated Press said, it's over, Johnny. You know, um, 
all you need is 270 electoral votes. And for, um, and for my listeners outside of the U.S., yes, we have this kind of archaic system where we don't elect the president based on the popular vote. We elect the president via a process or system known as the Electoral College. Uh, basically, the way it works is, is that each state is worth a certain number of electoral votes. And the people casting these electoral votes are known as electors. And I believe the way it goes is that the number of electors for a state is determined by the total number of that state's representatives in Congress. I think that's how it goes. And in order to become the president-elect, a candidate has to reach 270 electoral votes. And my math skills suck, but uh, that's half of the total number of members of the Electoral College. Yeah, I think it's 500, uh, yeah, 538. I just quickly looked it up. But it's a system that's been widely criticized because with the Electoral College, you can have someone who's won the popular vote. The American people have basically said, this is the candidate we want. But then technically they can still lose because their opponent won the greater number of electoral votes because some states are worth many more electoral votes than others. In fact, uh, back in 2016, I believe uh, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, but obviously uh, Trump had more electoral votes. And so for days, Trump's total number of electoral votes had been stalled at 214, while Biden's kept climbing. And I'm looking at Apple's news app now, and they have Biden at 290 electoral votes, and Trump still stalled at 214. And once again, you only need 270 to meet the criteria for becoming the president-elect. And so as I was mentioning earlier, the press in general were kind of approaching the numbers cautiously, just watching as Trump's possible paths to victory narrowed. And finally, the Associated Press, they were the first ones to say or declare that he doesn't have any paths to victory left. You know, and uh, we're calling it. Biden officially, you know, has enough electoral, well, I shouldn't say officially, but it was their call that, uh, yes, Biden has enough electoral votes that it's safe to call him the president-elect. And I've mentioned this previously on the show, but for months now, Trump has had this bizarre obsession with mail-in ballots. And I think he knew for a while now that there was a good chance that he might lose and that for whatever reason, it seems that um, Democrats or left-leaning people are more likely to use mail-in ballots while um, Republican or conservative voters, for whatever reason, are more likely to vote in person. And I'm not sure if that holds true outside of our current predicament with the pandemic, but it does make sense if you look at um, the current state of things. We're in the middle of a pandemic, and it seems to be people on the right or Trump supporters specifically who are kind of more conspiratorially minded, distrustful of the medical experts, kind of dabble in science denialism. Uh, don't like being told or asked to wear a mask. Uh, so, it, so it makes sense that they'd be the ones who are more likely to vote in person. Well, um, people who do take the medical experts 
uh, seriously and whatnot, uh, I'm more likely to kind of be more cautious and opt for the safer alternative of using mail-in ballots, you know what I mean? So Trump probably rightly assumed that it was going to be his followers who were more likely to vote in person. Well, it was going to be, you know, people less likely to vote for him, who were more likely to back the Democratic uh, candidate, who were going to opt for mail-in voting. And so he probably figured if he can deter or impede mail-in voting, he'll be more likely to win. And uh, you probably remember the story about Louis DeJoy, or is it DeJoyce, uh, Trump's crony or friend that he put in the position of postmaster general. And we saw mailboxes being yeeted and uh, reports of uh, mail slowing down, etc., or an attempt to kind of slow things down. And so I think Trump saw this coming. And so for months now, he's been trying to erode confidence in mail-in voting, you know? And so I think, unfortunately, that Trump and his lawyers are going to try to drag things out as long as possible. And you know, it's funny, for a very long time now, you might have heard of this already, that Bill Maher has had this running thing on his show where he, you know, repeatedly talks about how if Trump loses, he's not going to want to leave. And that sounds so kind of batshit crazy because, I mean, what option or alternatives does he have? You know what I mean? Uh, the president of the United States isn't a king. You're an elected official. And by law, if a new president has been elected, you have to vacate the premises. You know what I mean? Um, really weird. And I never thought I'd be saying this about an American president, but there's even been talk about Trump possibly trying to stage a kind of soft coup. And I compared Trump to a kind of tin pot dictator before, actually when referencing the whole Louis DeJoy situation and trying to slow down the mail. Uh, yeah, just the word coup, I associate that with some third world dictatorship, not an American president. So this is strange territory. I mean, my guess is things will turn out fine. There'll be a transition of power as there always is. You know what I mean? Uh, I don't think Trump will be happy about it. I don't think he'll be gracious about it. I don't know if he'll meet with Biden in person and kind of welcome him the way that Barack Obama did with Trump. If they do meet, I don't know how that will go. But I imagine we will have a transition of power. I just don't know how smoothly it will go. You know what I mean? And even though who you choose to vote for is kind of, you know, a personal decision, people might feel kind of funny about being asked about it or revealing it. Uh, I already revealed on the show that I voted for Biden, not because I thought he was an ideal candidate, but because he wasn't Donald Trump, you know, and the top priority for me was getting rid of Trump and bringing this bizarre dystopian chapter of American history to an end. You know what I mean? And it may sound like strong or hyperbolic language, but uh, other people have invoked the word fascism. Some have described us as kind of sliding towards fascism under Trump. And as over-the-top or melodramatic as that might sound, I actually agree with that sentiment. And, uh, you know, I was describing earlier how under Trump, it almost feels like being under some third-world tin-pot dictator. 
And my regular listeners are probably sick of hearing it, but if you're someone who's new to the show, you might be wondering, well, why don't you like Trump? You know what I mean? And so just to quickly go through it, a lot of it has to do with his character or lack thereof. I've mentioned repeatedly how some of the things that initially turned me off were the way he brazenly and unapologetically promoted the birtherism conspiracy theory, uh, the way he said of John McCain, someone who was a prisoner of war, that he prefers people who weren't captured. Trump himself being someone who didn't serve his country when called. Like a lot of rich kids back during the Vietnam War, he just accumulated a stack of medical deferments. And it's something that you don't hear brought up a lot anymore. And this is part of the strange genius, for lack of a better word, of Donald Trump. He's constantly saying and doing inappropriate things. He's constantly embroiled in new scandals. And so the old stuff kind of moves to the uh, the back burner and gets forgotten. You know what I mean? And we haven't heard it brought up much recently, but there's his treatment of women. Remember, there's the whole grab him by the pussy tape. <laughs> Pardon my language. I've been trying not to uh, swear or curse as much on the show. Um, and some people try to write that off as, in Trump's own words, as locker room uh, talk. And it is true that when guys get together, and I have a lot of uh, female friends too, and I, uh, my female friends can be very raunchy and inappropriate, and we just say wild stuff. But in Trump's case, you almost get the feeling that he was being sincere to some degree, that he really does think that with his money and power also comes the right to try to just grab or take whatever woman he wants. You know what I mean? And to that point, there was a whole deluge of uh, sexual assault allegations. And of course, allegations. I don't think anything was ever proven in a court of law. And of course, sometimes people do get falsely accused of sexual assault, and that's very serious. Uh, but the number of accusers and the fact that many of them were established people with their own careers seemed very credible, didn't seem to be in it for the money or attention. And I mean, just given the vast number of allegations, often where there's smoke, there's fire. And I believe before walking it back, his ex-wife, Ivana, actually accused him of marital rape. Uh, then there's the weird stuff like inappropriate comments about his own children, clips of him kind of commenting on Ivanka's body on the Howard Stern show and elsewhere. And there's another video where, where he's sitting with one of his ex-wives. I don't think it's Ivana. It might be Marla Maples. And he's basically talking about his prepubescent daughter's body, saying how, you know, like her mother, she's got the legs, but we don't know if she has this yet. And he's gesturing to the chest. So he's basically speculating on whether or not his young daughter is going, you know, what size chest she's going to have. Kind of a weird thing for a father to be thinking about, you know. Then there's the stories about him bragging about just kind of waltzing into the dressing rooms of teenage beauty contestants. Um, and, you know, joking about how he would use the kind of cover that he was in there kind of inspecting things. But also, you know, well, telling the story, bragging about how it gave him a chance to check out the teen girls. You know what I mean? And I'm a non-believer, so I don't have any religious hang-ups about sexuality or sex. But I do believe 
and being decent. You know what I mean? And some of this stuff, it's like, whoa. And to be, uh, did I just do a, a Joey Lawrence? Whoa. And, and uh, to be fair, and I have to admit it, I kind of feel bad bringing this up because this is supposed to be, you know, a positive time. If like myself, you're not a fan of Donald Trump and you thought he was staring the country off the rails, you know what I mean? But intellectual honesty, both as a podcast host and just as a human being is important to me. So I'd be amiss if I didn't mention that Joe Biden has also faced sexual assault allegations. And in fairness, I believe just one of the allegations involved actual sexual assault. And uh, I'm recording this in the morning. I'm like, this is even too early for me, you know, but, uh, you know, apologies of ahead of time. But the accuser, a woman named Tara Reid, not that Tara Reid, wasn't there a, a, a actress in the 90s who was in a lot of stuff named Tara Reid, different spelling? Anyway... Uh, I shouldn't be laughing. She accused him of unwanted digital penetration. She was working as a staff assistant, I believe. And this was back in the 90s, uh, 1993. Um, so there was that one really serious allegation. And then there was a slew of allegations, not of sexual assault, but kind of of just misconduct and invading people's personal space, you know, that kind of creepy Uncle Joe behavior that we've probably all seen videos and pictures of him kind of sniffing on people and, you know, touching people, rubbing their shoulders, touching uh, his forehead to theirs. Maybe in his mind, it's a kind of show of uh, platonic affection or solidarity uh, or maybe there is something creepy going on. I don't know. But people used to um, write it off as just kind of folksy behavior. That he's a kind of warm, affectionate guy who really loves people or whatever, you know? I mean, I, I don't know what's in his heart and mind. So, but, um, so you have one serious allegation of sexual assault. Then you just have all, all these other stories about a Uncle Joe's a little too touchy or he kind of gives me the creeps or whatever, you know what I mean? And I'm not trying to trivialize those incidents because I know some people really do get kind of shaken up if someone invades their personal space or touches them without permission. I remember uh, I, there was one incident I experienced where I was at a party, Jesus, probably like five years ago or more, and... um one of my close female friends was the one throwing a party and there was a girl there who I'd met at parties a couple of times before and we also talked a lot on Facebook and uh, we hit it off, not like romantically, I would say platonically, that's the way I looked at it. It turned out that we, we were into a lot of the same stuff, into a lot, a lot of the same uh, music, that kind of thing. And so we were talking and kind of, uh, you know, person to person at this party, and um, just really connecting over music and different stuff like that. And I kind of put my um, arm around her shoulder, just like I would, like a guy friend. And she was like, whoo, she got like, <laughs> all of a sudden she got like disturbed and kind of stepped back. I'm like, whoa, I'm sorry, you know, I didn't mean anything by that. And then she kind of like... Um, she was quickly over it. And yeah, so just, some people get bothered by that kind of stuff. 
And then it's kind of funny because then there was a Halloween party like several years later and we just hugged hello. We knew each other better by then. And she was kind of leaning in and sniffing on me. So, hey. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I'm kind of an affectionate guy, but I don't think in a creepy way, you know, whether it's a female friend or a guy friend, you know, you almost form that chemistry with people. Like, you don't even have to think about it if you know someone well and you feel uh, close to them. Like, you're at a party and you're standing side by side and you just kind of instinctively kind of lean in towards the person you're standing next to and you kind of put your arm around their shoulder and, you know, as a kind of platonic show of affection or whatever. Um, yeah, so, yeah, that uh, that incident stuck with me because I usually don't get that kind of awkward reaction because it's usually a kind of welcome thing between someone I have a bond with, you know what I mean? But I, I definitely, uh, that stuck with me and I do, you know, always try to be mindful of people's uh, personal space. Uh, but I definitely wouldn't do, you know, the kind of thing that Joe Biden does where you're giving people deep, you know, shoulder rubs or something. And I, some of the people, I don't even know how well he knows them. Sometimes it looks like it's kids or adults that he's just met on stage or something. I don't know. But yeah, the kind of, you know, touching your head to that, your forehead to the forehead of someone you don't know very well, or um, giving a deep shoulder massage or, or sniffing on them, you know what I mean? Uh, even if it's someone you know well, like everyone has different boundaries or personal limits, you know what I mean? Uh, so it's something that I, at least I myself try to be mindful of. I do know people who do kind of act like that, like the Joe Biden thing. Like I, I won't, you know, out the person or drop their name on the show, but I know one guy, um, I, I don't know if his physicality kind of plays into the psychology of it because he's like a really tall guy, kind of masculine, rugged, uh, you know, like myself works with his hands, but I feel like, you know, I'm more like a cerebral person who got stuck in a manual kind of labor profession, hoping, still hoping someday to get out of it and either turn graphic design or podcasting into my day job where this is a guy kind of born to work with his hands. You know what I mean? Kind of just uh, a big physical presence kind of exudes physicality and confidence and I've seen him do so, and he's a married guy, and I've seen him, like, sitting on a couch next to someone he doesn't know that well, maybe he's met a couple of times, who's also married, like a woman, and he'll just put his hand on their thigh and pretend it's, like, no big deal and keep his hand there while, you know, they're talk while everyone's talking or whatever. And I don't know if the guy's bi or what, but really a rugged kind of... Uh, big physical guy, but I often wonder if he might not be bi too, because hell, he'll put like his hand on my thigh or something, or sometimes do things kind of almost flirtatious with other guys, but he's like a big macho guy who's married to a woman, you know, so it's, it's weird, but yeah, there are some people who will kind of, um, invade other people's personal space or get a bit too touchy-feely, and they do it with this kind of casual ease, like they think it's no big deal, you know what I mean? And I don't know what it is, but on multiple occasions, I've seen guys do this move where there'll be a girl sitting down that they kind of dig, right? And they come up behind the girl, and they'll do like a deep shoulder massage. And sometimes I think 
if they could only see the girl from the front and what her reaction is. Because <laughs> I've seen this a few times where a guy will come up and try to massage a girl's uh, shoulders. And I'll be able to see the girl from the front. And she'll be kind of lifting her shoulders up and looking awkwardly around with her side to side with her eyes like, what is going on? Someone please save me. You know what I mean? And I remember when I was going back to school for design, there's this guy that I used to kind of pal around with. Uh, this might sound kind of conceited, but I got the feeling that he kind of looked up to me. Uh, he was kind of shorter. And at the time I was like, yeah, I was probably uh, older than most of the students. I think I was probably like in my early 30s at the time or something. And yeah, so I just got the feeling that he kind of looked up to me and we used to kind of pal around or, you know, like he wanted my approval or respect or something. And there was this girl in the class. And uh, I remember I was actually kind of sweet on this girl. Uh, I never did anything out of the line or whatever. And I was also, uh, I was friendly with her. Could probably say we were friends. And uh, so all three of us used to kind of talk and joke around or whatever. And one time I was on like the other side of the room getting something. And there was always a kind of loose atmosphere in the class because it was a drawing class. So there'd be like a big ring of easels and there'd often be like music playing in the background and people would talk while they were like painting or drawing or whatever. So I went to get something. I'm going back to, you know, my seat and I could see because this girl was like really tall and this guy was kind of short. The girl's sitting down. And the guy is uh, massaging her from behind. And she's doing that thing. Like she has her like has her, her shoulders way up, almost like in a protective gesture. And she's just kind of looking side to side, like what's going on? You know what I mean? And then I have a few different friend circles. But the group of friends that I hang around with the most that I, you know, once in a while, I'll share an anecdote with you guys about my adventures out partying or whatever. It's usually with that group. And uh, it was a female friend of mine that introduced me to that group. And so there's other guys that are part of the group. And I remember one time we're at a party and maybe I was getting a drink or something. I'm coming back to the group. And so I have two female friends who are kind of facing me sitting down. And uh, two of the guys from the group, it was this weird thing like synchronized... Uh, I don't know, creepy massaging or something. There was uh, a guy massaging one friend and another guy massaging the other friend. And both of them, because I was looking at them as I was approaching the group, had like their shoulders up in that weird protective stress thing. And they're just kind of looking around like, what's going on? So what I'll usually do in that situation is I'll like play it cool, but I'll say something kind of like half jokingly to kind of get the point across, you know? Like, I might look at my friend, the one who's on the receiving end of the creepy massage, and say, uh, like, hey, you know, insert name here, enjoying that massage. Or, you know, I'll look at the guy and be like, you know, I'll say some wise-ass thing to get the point across that the girl doesn't look like she's really into it or whatever. But it's funny, that friend or that guy I mentioned earlier, the kind of big, rugged, workman kind of guy who will casually put his hand on, you know, the thighs of other people's wives, etc. Uh, it's funny, when the shoe's on the other foot, he has a totally different reaction or whatever. 
And so I'm friends with his wife. I'd say I'm friends with both of them, but I met him through his wife because his wife is the best friend of the female friend who introduced me to the group, if that doesn't sound too convoluted. And so I, I knew the wife before they had gotten married uh, and then I became, uh, you know, friends with him. Um, you know, it's funny. So we're at this party and all of us had been drinking. I'm talking to him and his wife in the kitchen. And uh, and his wife uh, suddenly put on, like just joking around, put on this like sexy voice and she said something to me. And just instinctively I go, whoa, that was hot. And the, uh, and the guy just looks up at me like wide-eyed, mouth agape, and just like, you know, shoulders and hands up, like what, the, as if to say, what the hell? So he's kind of like pure carnal id, but if you like say anything untowards towards his wife or whatever, or act the least bit flirtatious, then it's suddenly like, what the hell, you know? But he doesn't recognize even more, you know, kind of uh, inappropriate behavior on his own part or whatever. But yeah, definitely a, a wild and entertaining group of people. But I haven't hung out with any of them in person, I think, since... COVID, you know what I mean? And I was supposed to be giving my thoughts on the election, and I ended up on some long-winded digression about, uh, you know, my personal life or whatever. Uh, but I think I got there because, I know, I was talking about the reasons why I personally dislike Donald Trump and how a lot of it has to do with his character or lack thereof. And then in an attempt to be intellectually honest or fair, I brought up, you know, accus accusations against Biden. And then that led me into talking about people who are a bit too touchy-feely or whatever. Yeah, that's how I got there. Okay. But that one serious accusation against Biden of sexual assault, uh, I mean, who knows? It It's so frustrating. It reminds me of... Similar cases involving high-profile atheists and skeptics, uh, some of which are whom I really admired, you know? And it feels like you're kind of left in limbo. Because if you're a decent person who wants to know the truth and wants to see justice prevail, but you can't really make a decision because you weren't there, you don't know what actually transpired, all you really have is one person's word against another person's, and you're afraid to err on either side. Because the idea of siding with the perpetrator, if the allegations are actually true, that's obviously, you know, absolutely monstrous. But on the other hand, if, the, if it's a false allegation and you're siding with the accuser, that means that you're taking part in kind of smearing the name of an innocent person. And that's monstrous as well. So it's it's like you're kind of paralyzed in the middle and uh, you're unable to make a final judgment. So it's kind of like, yeah, that guy, oh yeah, I like him. He seems like a nice guy. Unless he did that thing he's accused of doing, then he's a total scumbag. And it's like, how do you know? You know what I mean? And I don't want to drop names because I don't want to stir anything up. But if you move in the same circles as me, you know, uh, and you watch a lot of uh, atheist YouTube or consume atheist content, then you're probably aware that there's a number of high-profile atheists and science communicators out there who've had some really serious allegations 
bra against them. Yeah, it's weird because you don't know what actually happened and you, you feel like you don't know how to really feel about the person. So, yeah, it's and strange and frustrating. And hopefully this isn't my bias seeping in, but and maybe it's flawed logic, but this is kind of how I approach these things. I'm like, one allegation? It's like, okay, I don't know. Maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. Uh, but when you start to see a larger pattern, you know, like someone like a Trump, because in his case, and I think I may have mentioned this earlier, it's well over 20 women, uh, I believe it's about 25, who have accused him of varying degrees of sexual assault. Uh, and not to get too graphic, but everything from rape to uh, sexual harassment, non-consensual kissing, groping. Um, Wow, you know what I mean? And so then you're getting up to like Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein numbers, and you kind of start thinking, well, maybe, you know, where there's smoke, there's probably fire. And maybe that's a little unfair to say because nothing's been proven against Trump, I don't think, in a court of law where both Cosby and Weinstein have been found guilty. But yeah, but I mean, you can't help but think, you know, <laughs> where where there's smoke, maybe there's fire. And Biden also has, you know, roughly like 20 allegations against him. But uh, to reiterate, as I said before, those are one was a serious case of uh, of alleged assault. The others were more like creepy Uncle Joe allegations, doing his weird uh, his weird hair sniffing thing or <laughs> whatever it is. Um, and, and I think he did come out and say, if I remember correctly, that uh, he realizes that he was kind of invading people's personal space and making people feel uncomfortable, and uh, that he was trying to process that and change his behavior or whatever, you know. Once again, I know this is supposed to be a positive time for us anti-Trump people, so uh, didn't plan on going into this. Uh, but yeah, just trying to be fair. And uh, while I'm talking about my reasons for disliking Trump and the whole, you know, lack of character thing and uh, sexual misconduct, uh, yeah, let us not forget the whole Stormy Daniels thing and that when he was supposedly having an affair with her, that at the time Melania would have been pregnant with Barron. So... Family values. And I was going to say that I have other more policy-related reasons for disliking Trump or wanting him gone, too. But when I think about it, you could argue that it all leads back to, you know, a, a lack of character. You know, there's the just the irresponsible and divisive way in which he talks and conducts himself um, that I think has really kind of fueled this massive division at large that's blighting the country right now. And I think all of us feel it, you know, this, this is not normal. And when it comes to all of the civil unrest, the looting and the rioting, I think at the end of the day, you know, people have to be held responsible for their own actions. So I'm not saying that the people doing the looting and the rioting or damaging property should be absolved of responsibility, not at all. But I think 
Trump's temperament and his handling of the matter kind of fueled the civil unrest and caused it to grow more intense and prolonged it, you know, longer than it needed to be. If he had acted like more of a an adult and a unifier and tried to use speech that brought everyone together, things may have cooled down or de-escalated a lot sooner, you know what I mean? And I'm not trying to sound naive. I know things like the National Guard have their place, or that, you know, at some point you have to try to reestablish law and order, but when it's all like Bull Connor, when the looting starts, the shooting starts right out the gate, and you're threatening um, these strong-arm tactics or whatever, uh, you know, and you're, you're using language that's just kind of adding fuel to the fire or causing even more division. Then, of course, there's also his handling of COVID. He likes to brag that early on, he implemented travel restrictions or a ban regarding China. And I was actually reading an AP article about this, and it, I believe they said um, it actually wasn't a ban. It was more of kind of, quote-unquote, porous restrictions. But thousands of people were still coming and going. Yeah, but I just pulled it up, so let me read a little bit from this AP article. The U.S. restrictions that took effect February 2nd continued to allow travel to the U.S. from China's Hong Kong and Macau. Is it? It's, I think it's Macau, right? Territ Is that where uh, Bruce Lee was from? Anyway, Macau territories over the past five months. The Associated Press reported that more than 8,000 Chinese and foreign nationals based in those territories entered the U.S. in the first three months after the travel restrictions were imposed. Additionally, more than 27,000 Americans returned from mainland China in the first month after the restrictions took effect. U.S. officials lost track of more than 1,600 of them who were supposed to be monitored for virus exposure. Few doubt that the heavy death toll from COVID-19 would be even heavier if world travel had not been constricted globally. But Trump has no scientific basis to claim that his action alone saved millions or even hundreds of thousands of lives, as he put it. And so to put that into some context, that was actually a recent fact-checking article, I believe, uh, in response to claims made by Trump during one of the uh, presidential debates. And I think it's also known now, maybe it was then too, I don't know, but that in a sense the real danger or part of the real danger was um, in flux from Europe. So I mean in fairness, I mean understandably the focus was mostly on China because that's where the virus originated, but at the same time it had already spread to Europe, and it was kind of like, come on in, guys, you know what I mean? Everyone's busy looking at China while COVID's waltzing in with some uh, Groucho Marx glasses on. But, uh, that was a lame joke. Anyway, um, but yeah, then just the, the brazen way he politicized 
uh, COVID, even after getting it himself. You know, we saw him kind of up on the balcony there without his tie, kind of gasping for air like a guppy. Yeah, he's telling all the common folk not to worry about COVID, not to let it dominate you. Well, he's all pumped up on all these fancy experimental drugs and all the best medical treatment, you know what I mean? Uh, helicopter scooping him up off the front lawn and bringing him to Walter Reed, you know? And, uh, I mean, he always sounds crazed and inappropriate, but remember uh, following his little battle with COVID there after he did, you know, receive the, uh, the top care that most people don't have, you know, access to? Uh, he was at his rallies talking about how he wanted to go into the crowd and kiss all the women and the men. Um, yeah, I think people were speculating that he was probably hopped up on steroids, that steroids can kind of have this kind of weird manic effect on you, I guess. And, uh, I'm like, it's all right to be bi, Donald. I'm very pro LGBTQ rights. And, uh, I might even know a bi, uh, <laughs> a blue collar bi guy who, uh, who I could fix you up with. See how I brought things back around there. And speaking of LGBTQ rights, I think I, I finally did it. I managed to fit the Q in before I ran out of breath. Um, but another thing I resent about Trump is the way he he reversed Obama's um, transgender military policy and basically pushed uh, trans people in the military back into the closet. Hey everyone, so I have to confess, I originally started recording this episode this past Sunday, which would have been the 8th, when the AP's calling or announcement that, you know, Biden, it looks like he's the president-elect, at least according to the numbers. Uh, as I was saying earlier, there's a lot of pushback from people on the right uh, that uh, the media doesn't elect the president, you know, and of course that's true, but they do report the numbers. So when they reach a point, as I was saying earlier also, where there's no path to victory left for the opponent, then it's safe to say, yeah, according to the numbers, looks like this guy's the president-elect, you know what I mean? So that news was fresh in my mind at the time. Um, and, and I was going to talk about how Obviously, this is the outcome I wanted. Uh, you guys probably know I'm very anti-Trump. Um, not crazy, really, about Biden either. Uh, but for me, the priority was just getting, uh, getting Trump out of there and returning to some semblance of normalcy. And so I, I was going to talk about how, surprisingly, I just felt kind of numb you know, after the AP called it for uh, for Biden, I didn't feel jubilant. I didn't feel like rubbing the victory into other people's faces or whatever. There was just this strange kind of numb feeling and almost this silence that, wow, you know, because for the last four years, it's like every day has been something in the news about Trump, constantly hearing about Trump. Uh, what crazy thing did he say on Twitter this morning? What outrageous thing has he done? Who has he insulted? You know what I mean? And then all of a sudden it was like just silence and calm. <sighs> but no like jubilation or anything like that. Uh, I really did just feel kind of numb. And I think another possible reason why I felt that way is that you know, it wasn't really a surprise. The counting had been going on for days. 
and you know for days what biden was up at like 270 something while trump was stuck at 214 electoral votes and his possible path to victory just kept shrinking and shrinking so when they finally called it it, it wasn't a surprise i think everyone already saw that coming and so i'm kind of glad that i've dragged out the recording in a way, even though I feel bad, you know, I felt kind of stressed out, like, man, I gotta get this episode out. And uh, I felt bad that I think on Twitter on, on Saturday, maybe when I released the video version of the post Halloween episode, I said, I'll be recording a new episode tomorrow, which will have been Sunday. So I guess in a way, technically, I'm not a liar because I did start recording this Sunday, you know what I mean? But in a way, I'm kind of glad that um, I was kind of dragging my feet because it gives me a chance to include some updates, you know, things that have transpired since the recording began. And I think yesterday, Trump finally did win another uh, state. I believe it was Alaska. Uh, that only brought his electoral votes up to 217. Biden is still at 290. And... Um, I think I said near the beginning of this episode that people were talking about the possibility of a soft coup or a coup in general. And people have kind of been memeing, you know, playfully going, coup, coup. And uh, man, did I just give myself the douche chills. Remind me to never do uh, pigeon sounds on the show ever again. <laughs> but, you know, a coup d'etat and, uh, you know, a kind of uh, a, a, a takeover by force or whatever, or, you know, by plotting of the government. And I think I also said earlier that, you know, we probably don't have to worry. There's probably not going to be a chance of that. At some point, there will be a, you know, a transition of power, but it might just not be that, you know, go that smoothly. Um, I still think that's probably the case for the most part, but there have been some developments that, you know, kind of made the hair stand up on the back of my neck. Trump fired his defense secretary, and then he also fired four, I think it was, officials, top officials at the Pentagon, and replaced them with loyalists. So that right there is kind of spooky, and I'll read a bit from this ABC article. A day after Defense Secretary Mark Esper was fired by President Donald Trump and replaced by Acting Secretary Christopher Miller, several top-ranking Pentagon officials have resigned and been replaced by Trump loyalists. Stepping into the newly vacated job as the Pentagon's top policy chief is Anthony Tata, a controversial retired Army general and Fox News analyst whose nomination to that job was pulled earlier this year because of offensive tweets he had made about Islam and President Barack Obama. Yeah, so the guy seems pretty unhinged. He supports or embraces these kind of deep state conspiracy theories. He accused Barack Obama of being quote-unquote Muslim, of being a quote-unquote Manchurian candidate, and this is probably the most inflammatory of all the accusations. He accused Barack Obama of being, quote-unquote, a terrorist leader. And it's like, wow, some Islamic Manchurian candidate. He actually increased drone strikes, uh, gave the order to kill bin Laden, and in general proved himself to be pretty much just another, you know, establishment career politician, you know? And I say that as someone who voted for him. 
twice. A very charismatic and likable guy, and he did do some good. But uh, personally, I became kind of disillusioned after a while, and was kind of disappointed uh, by just how much of a kind of, you know, run-of-the-mill establishment politician he turned out to be. Um, but I have to admit, I saw some clips of him, you know, holding rallies or whatever for uh, Biden, and it was nice. I definitely felt some kind of nostalgia. Uh, he definitely has a kind of, you know, a gift for speaking, and he, he does kind of exude charisma. But I don't want to get too sidetracked talking about Obama. I was just trying to make the point that the idea that he's some kind of secret Muslim infiltrator or Manchurian candidate is ridiculous. But this guy, Anthony Tata, also directed his ire and suspicion at John O'Brennan, who was the uh, CIA director at the time. And he had publicly accused uh, Brennan of being part of some deep state cabal that was trying to undermine Trump. He repeatedly pushed the false conspiracy theory that Brennan had ordered the assassination of Trump. And so here's a tweet that Tata directed at Brennan. Might be a good time to pick your poison. Firing squad, public hanging, life sentence as prison bitch, or just suck on your pistol. So yeah, tweeted that at the director of the CIA. And this is one of the guys that um, Trump just gave an important Pentagon job to. And then also recently, Mike Pompeo, Trump's secretary of state, was speaking at a press conference. And he started out by kind of jokingly saying that there will be a smooth transition to a second Trump administration. And uh, at least it appeared to me that he was joking, kinda. But even if you give him the benefit of the doubt that it was just a joke, it's still a pretty stupid and inappropriate one, you know, because the president still hasn't conceded yet. And you have voters like myself who believe that the election was fair and that Biden won, you know, by more than 70 electoral votes or around 70. But we're afraid that Trump might do whatever he can to try to undermine the results. And so, you know, when the um, Secretary of State comes out to the podium and says, we're even if it's jokingly, we're going to have a smooth transition to a second Trump administration, uh, that doesn't really instill confidence in the system. You know what I mean? And I'm not some expert on politics or some policy wonk, but it does seem kind of strange to me for a president who should be getting ready to enter this kind of lame duck period or session, you know, in between now and the inauguration of the president-elect, to be hiring and firing and changing around top officials. So, I mean, why is he doing it? I suppose one possibility is that in his mind, he thinks that maybe he really can stage some kind of coup, you know, and that if he has the power of the Pentagon behind him, it'll make, you know, give him a better chance of being able to hang on to power. Another possibility might be that he's just being petty, which wouldn't be surprising. And he's trying to make things more difficult for Biden, you know, after he's gone by leaving Biden with a bunch of Trump loyalists. You know what I mean? I don't know. 
And so since I did vote for Biden, and in my mind I viewed him as a more palatable or acceptable alternative to Trump, and that's not setting the bar that high, you know what I mean? I figured I'd probably try to close out this episode by just giving you my honest thoughts on Joe Biden. As I've said before, I've always been moved by his personal story. Uh, the fact that when he was, and I think, was he the youngest or one of the youngest people ever to be elected to the Senate? And uh, so as a young guy, a brand new senator, he, it's horrible. Uh, his family got into a car crash. I believe his first wife and his daughter died. And uh, the remaining son was badly injured. So he basically was grieving the loss of his wife and daughter while nursing his son back to health and uh, acting as, you know, this young senator. So that's, I mean, that's very touching. And then, of course, um, the way time flies, I'm not sure. But several years ago, his son, Bo Biden, died. Uh, I believe he died of cancer. Uh, but uh, Bo Biden was an impressive figure himself. I believe he was an attorney general, but because he wanted to serve his country, he actually left that job to go and fight uh, overseas, you know. I just looked it up. Yeah, Bo Biden died in 2015 from brain cancer. So yeah, awful stuff. And that's a family that's experienced a lot of tragedy, you know. Uh, but yeah, so once again, I began recording this episode on, uh, was it Sunday? I think it was Sunday. And now it's Friday. And uh, I feel like I'm a little under the gun, like I have to hurry up and get this episode out. I'm recording it. I only had a half day at work because of the rain. It's now 2.28 p.m. And I think uh, sometime after three, Trump is going to have a, uh, a press conference or something like that. I can see on YouTube that David Pakman is planning on covering it live, and it looks like his coverage is scheduled to begin at 3.25. So who knows, maybe Trump is going to finally concede, or maybe it will just be a big F you to the media and the Biden campaign, and he's just announcing that he's going to dig his heels in further. Who knows? Uh, with him, you know, it could go either way. But actually... I have trouble picturing him conceding at all just because of how egomaniacal he is, you know what I mean? But at some point, even he has to face the music and realize that, you know, he didn't win. So where was I? Oh yeah, I was sharing my honest thoughts on Joe Biden. And as promised, I'll now move on to the whole Hunter Biden controversy. And so it's a pretty convoluted story, but I think it goes something like this. When Joe Biden was serving as vice president under Barack Obama, I think one of his roles or responsibilities was to kind of direct American policy regarding the Ukraine. And so I have to admit, when I first heard this story, and this story's been around for a while now, uh, you know, when I first heard that Joe Biden had a son who was kind of... Um, a drug-addicted ne'er-do-well or whatever, you know? Um, I, I pictured Joe Biden taking this son who couldn't get his life to get together, you know, and giving him this cushy job in the Ukraine where he got paid obscene amounts of money. 
You know what I mean? And I thought that sounded very kind of corrupt or, you know, where's the fairness in that? You know, there's a lot of people struggling to make ends meet and who work hard. And this rich senator, well, technically he was the vice president at the time, arranged to hook his son up with this sweet job where he's raking in tons and tons of money. Um, more money in a month than the average American makes in a whole year, you know what I mean? But that's not quite how the story goes. And the way people talked about Hunter Biden, I just pictured him being this, this complete train wreck who never accomplished anything in his life. But he actually has a law degree and he's a practicing lawyer, at least he was. And I believe he attended both uh, Georgetown and Yale. And so he was a part of this big law firm alongside with, uh, I think, John Kerry's stepson, or it was someone from the, uh, the Hines Kerry family. And so Hunter Biden accepts this job with this big Ukrainian company, Burisma or Burisma Holdings, uh, which was owned by a Ukrainian oligarch, I believe, who was facing uh, money laundering uh, charges or who was under investigation for money laundering. And I believe uh, the person I mentioned before, uh, John Kerry's stepson, who is part of the law firm, um, I believe he and the firm disapproved of both of Bo Biden, sorry about that, of Hunter Biden taking this position because they viewed it as being, um, you know, as a bad move PR-wise for the firm and that it would be seen as a conflict of interest, you know? And so I guess part of Joe Biden's agenda regarding his work in the Ukraine was to try to root out corruption. And there was this top prosecutor named Victor Shokin, I think it is, and Joe Biden, along with other Western leaders and other American politicians, was trying to encourage the Ukraine to fire this guy. Um, despite the fact that he was a top prosecutor, he was also uh, supposedly corrupt and actually blocked uh, corruption investigations. But because of Hunter Biden being on the board of Burisma, and as I said, Burisma was owned by uh, a Ukrainian oligarch who was facing a money laundering investigation. It gave this appearance that there was a conflict of interest or that Joe Biden may have been in cahoots with Burisma and was trying to get rid of this top prosecutor so he wouldn't be able to prosecute the company uh, of which his son was on the board, you know. <laughs> But like I said, when you dig a little deeper, it appears that the top prosecutor himself was corrupt and Joe Biden wasn't alone in trying to uh, pressure the Ukraine to fire this guy. Uh, but I don't know. I can understand people seeing it either way. Even after hearing that, you know, it still seems a little fishy. And I understand if people are suspicious of Hunter and Joe Biden's roles in all this. Uh, on the other hand, you know, it kind of looks like Hunter Biden on his own may have used his father's name and his connections to get himself this really cushy job, you know, making 50 grand a month. I guess the pay varied from month to month, but yeah, some months he was making like $50,000. Um, so he may have done that on his own without his father being directly involved or anything. Um, 
and there may not have been any kind of uh, complicity on his father's part. I don't know, but like I said, I, I can understand people who look at it either way. In a way, I think it's kind of a political Rorschach test, you know what I mean? Um, if you lean right and you don't like Democrats, you know, you're probably going to see it as a clear case of, uh, of nepotism and corruption or whatever. And if you're a Democrat, then you're probably going to have a kind of softer view of it and see it as, you know, maybe Hunter Biden making a bad decision without his father's involvement. I don't know, you know. And then there's the case of Hunter Biden's laptop, or as Trump called it, the laptop from hell, spooky. So supposedly Hunter Biden brought a laptop in for repair at some shop in Delaware. And uh, I forget where they were saying Hunter Biden happened to live at the time, but supposedly he was in a whole different part of the map and it wouldn't have made sense for him to be bringing his laptop in for repair to some place in Delaware. Um, and then somehow, you know, either the laptop itself or the information garnered from it gets into Rudy Giuliani's hands. And so it looks like, I think what some people are saying is that Hunter Biden probably at least had his, um, you know, his online account, maybe his iCloud account or whatever it was, hacked. And so authentic emails and some authentic photos of his really did get into uh, someone's hands and uh, were then, you know, released to Giuliani or whoever made their way um, onto the Internet. Now, I remember there was one email in particular that people were trying to use as evidence that um, that Hunter Biden was giving his father kickbacks from his nefarious dealings with, uh, you know, the Ukraine oligarchs or whatever. And it was something like he was, I don't know if he was talking to one of his kids or he was talking to a relative. And it seemed like in this kind of self-pitying, but self, you know, but kind of half-joking way, he was talking about money and saying, at least you won't have to give half to pop like me. And so people were saying this is evidence that he was giving money uh, to Joe Biden and that it was probably, you know, fruit of some corrupt tree or whatever. But other people were saying that this may have just been Hunter Biden joking about how much money in taxes or whatever he had to give to the government. And supposedly he had an ongoing joke where he referred to the government, you know, and having the taxes he had to pay, etc., as, you know, going to pop because his father was the vice president. Uh, and honestly, I don't know what the exact case is with that. And it's funny, there's another email uh, that was, you know, uncovered or whatever and shared online that people are rightfully saying actually painted Joe Biden in a very kind of positive light. He just comes across as a very caring and decent parent. You know what I mean? Um, so it's an email to his son and he's saying uh, basically, hello, my beautiful son or whatever. And he's talking about how much he cares about his son and how the top priority is for him to get help for his addiction. And so it ended up put, you know, painting Joe Biden in this very kind of uh, positive light and really humanizing the man, you know what I mean? And so this is really disturbing. 
as I was saying, Trump and others uh, repeatedly referred to Hunter Biden's laptop as the laptop from hell. And I heard uh, some people alleging uh, that supposedly there were photos of, I don't even like, say it's so horrible, uh, but basically uh, photos of underage, you know, of children in a sexual nature. So, yeah, man, I don't even like talking about this crap, but I'm on PolitiFact right now. And uh, so it's taking on the claim. Uh, it says uh, there was a post on Facebook that said uh, Hunter Biden has 25,000 pics of him torturing and raping children under age 10 in China on his laptop. And uh, PolitiFact rates it as completely false. Um, so I'll go down. Oh, if this, here's the short version if you don't have time. There is no evidence that a laptop previously belonging to Hunter Biden contains child pornography. The allegation originated on an anonymous internet forum that's a known source of online disinformation. And I think uh, lower down it specifies that was 4chan. And then this is pretty crazy. I heard about this story the other day. Uh, supposedly, a lot of the uh, disinformation or the allegations against Hunter Biden originated uh, with some kind of firm or something that was, uh, turns out, it's basically non-existent and the person behind it isn't even a real person. And they even the person's uh, profile picture was generated by some kind of uh, software. So I'll read a bit about this. And this is from ABC. Uh, is it uh, NBC News? Okay. How a fake persona laid the groundwork for a Hunter Biden conspiracy deluge. A 64-page document that was later disseminated by close associates of President Donald Trump appears to be the work of a fake quote-unquote intelligence firm. One month before a purported leak of files from Hunter Biden's laptop, a fake quote-unquote intelligence document about him went viral on the right-wing internet. Asserting an elaborate conspiracy theory involving former Vice President Joe Biden's son and business in China, the document, a 64-page composition that was later disseminated by close associates of President Donald Trump, yeah, appears to be the work of a fake intelligence firm called Typhoon Investigations, according to researchers and public documents. The author of the document, a self-identified Swiss security analyst named Martin Aspen, is a fabricated identity, according to analysis by disinformation researchers, who also concluded that Aspen's profile picture was created with an artificial intelligence face generator. The intelligence firm that Aspen lists as his previous employer said that no one by that name had ever worked for the company and that no one by that name lives in Switzerland, according to public records and social media searchers. And so I'm not trying to sugarcoat things. You know, I'm not trying to suggest that I know for sure there wasn't any corruption. I mean, yeah, once again, on face value, the fact that he got this cushy job with uh, a Ukrainian company and, you know, combined with his father's role with the Ukraine, uh, it was at least, you, you know, a, a stupid move uh, that was bound to create at least the appearance of a conflict of interest. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, the whole kind of 
QAnon crazy conspiracies about his laptop and stuff. I think, as far as I can tell, most of that is BS. It's it's such a dark thing to joke about, you know? But I'm like, 25,000 pictures of him, you know... <laughs> Oh, man, torturing children, whatever it was. No, I'm just kind of like gallows humor. I'm thinking to myself, I can't imagine having 25,000 pictures of me doing anything. You know, I'm like, uh, you know, I got that new puppy during the lockdown after my uh, after my dog Olive passed away. And I'm like, I've had that that new dog for months now, and I probably have 10 pictures of her. I'm like, 25,000 pictures of anything? Damn, that's a lot. But speaking of pictures, there were some authentic Hunter Biden images that were retrieved either from a laptop or from a hacked account that ended up online. And to be honest, I haven't gone out of my way to look for them because uh, the way they're described, I don't, I have no interest in seeing the images. Uh, just stuff like uh, images that he either took of himself or someone else took of him when he's just, you know, cracked out or doing weird sexual stuff. Like there's supposed, supposedly an image of him getting, you know, and once again, pardon my language, I don't know how, how else to describe it, but uh, of him getting a foot job. <laughs> and uh, supposedly an image of his as other people have uh, put it online, his butthole. And yet we're down in the gutter again, no matter how, you know, I try to keep things clean or whatever. Here we are in the, gut in the gutter once again on the weekend out. There's supposedly images or an image of uh, Hunter Biden's butthole. And I can uh, assure you this, from here to the grave, I will never take or allow someone else to take an image of my butthole. Uh, that's, I mean, come on, man, you know, <laughs> but whatever you think of that kind of thing, you know, that kind of, uh, behavior and what kind of judgment or lack thereof it demonstrates, you know, I don't think that has anything to do with Joe Biden. You know, what are you going to argue that he's a bad father? You know, there's people, from what I can tell, he's actually a pretty darn good father and a very caring father, a very understanding father. But even good parents can end up having kids who kind of go off the rails. Uh, I mean, within one family, you can, you know, you have some kids are successful, other ones not so much. Some kids have their stuff together. Other ones are kind of a mess, you know. But I don't think Hunter Biden's personal behavior, like his drug use or his sexual habits, you know, should have anything to do with uh, whether or not Joe Biden is fit to lead the country, you know what I mean? And just one more related thing before I forget. Uh, I can't stand Tucker Carlson. I'll talk about, you know, how once in a while he almost comes off as human for like a, a fleeting moment. You'll catch a sincere smile or a hearty laugh and think uh, even though we have different you know, worldviews or we differ on politics, maybe this might be like a fun guy to talk to or, you know, share a beer with or whatever. Uh, but then those moments, you know, like I said, they're fleeting and I'm right back to, I, I cannot stand this guy's very existence. He is the, the smarmiest creature I have ever borne witness to in my life. You know what I mean? But yeah, I can't stand Tucker. And uh, I definitely 
had some, uh, indulged in some schadenfreude when, um, Tucker Carlson had promised his audience damning evidence against Hunter Biden having to do with the laptop and everything. And then, uh-oh, got lost in the mail. <laughs> you know, seriously, he had to come out and say that the evidence was lost. And so kind of people who are conspiratorially minded and people who don't like Biden or his son are probably going to say this is further evidence of some kind of deep state cabal and that um, some nefarious actor must have, uh, you know, intercepted the mail or whatever uh, or strong armed, you know, the courier company into um, handing over the package or not delivering it. Uh, but then someone like me might say most likely it's just evidence that it was a nothing burger to begin with and someone was pulling your chain, you know what I mean? But with that said, I'm going to call this episode a wrap. It's been over an hour now. So you guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page. I think I lost like six likes and you know how I am with the likes. I don't know what's going on there. But anyway, um, you can follow the show on Twitter, even though eh, I'm not on Twitter that much. You can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. If you want to help the show out monetarily, you can help what I do here by going to patreon.com slash the weekend out and supporting the show for as little as 99 cents a month. All right, brothers and sisters, uh, as always, thanks for listening and until next time. <laughs>